Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm talking with choreographer Annie B. Parson about her book, Drawing the Surface of Dance, a Biography in Charts. Annie B., welcome to the program. Thanks, Andy. So how did you first begin dancing? <laughs> um, beside the way everyone first begins dancing, which is just, we all just naturally dance all the time without anyone telling us to. Um, I began my dance training when actually the afternoon that I got a driver's license because I had wanted to go to ballet class and my mother said she didn't want to drive me um, because she was too busy. So when I got a driver's license, I drove to ballet class and I was 16. Oh, so, the, so you didn't grow up going to ballet class when you were a little, little kid? No, sadly, no. <laughs> Do you think that influenced the way that you think about dance and choreography? Oh, I never thought of that. Um, maybe because I came to it, quote unquote, late for dance. Mm-hmm. Right, the, the old, old age of 16. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, in other professions, like doctors come to study medicine a lot later as do, you know, in other professions, you mm-hmm. lawyers and stuff, but in dance, because um, I guess the development of the body and such that 16 is, is elderly to start. Yeah. I, I started with uh, children, meaning that my class that I took because it was beginning uh, was children and me. Um, and so maybe <laughs> just <laughs> maybe that influenced me. I don't know. Or maybe because I didn't have training as a child, it was less natural to me. So the movement, I don't see movement as the way other people do. Not sure. Yeah, that's fascinating. I thought maybe, you know, I, I think your choreography uses a lot of uh, sort of non-dancerly movement. And I wonder if that's maybe a product of... Uh, not having that sort of rigorous uh, ballet training drilled in when you were four or five. Maybe. I mean, I did sneak in about 25 years of ballet class. But <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't mean to slight your training. No, I think that the, the movement that's, that's more um, pedestrian, as they say, just comes from the tradition of my grandparents in the Judson Church. And when did you first begin to think that dance or choreography might be a career? Oh, I never didn't think about it. And that is so naive and ridiculous, but it uh, never occurred to me that it would be a problem, even though my parents were, uh, you know, vehemently concerned. Um, I always thought once I was in college and studying to be a choreographer, I always assumed I would be a choreographer and that was like the eighties when things felt more possible, I think. Um, and 
people weren't as realistic. But it worked out because I, I did end up being able to have a career as a choreographer, which is, I guess, rare, but it turns out to be a great field. Yeah. And then you mentioned briefly your your sort of grandparents metaphorically in the Judge, Judson Church scene. How did Was it in college that you became aware of their work? People like Yvonne Rayner and kind of that, that crew? I mean, I guess it would be that we all studied with people who were from that world mm. in college. And I would go to New York and watch the, that work. Um, and I remember seeing some of them um, do, like I remember seeing Lucinda Childs do solos at the old kitchen. And I remember seeing Douglas Dunn's work. And, you know, I think by the time I was watching it, Yvonne Rayner was not dancing anymore. She was making films. But I certainly saw a lot of those choreographers, not in their Judson Church moments, but in, you know, as as masterful dance makers. And it made sense to me because I liked, I liked the, the tonality of it. I liked what it was, it was not about. I liked the rejections in it. What kind of rejections? What do you mean by that? Well, um, I liked that they rejected sort of the lifted sternum and the lifted gaze and the flowy, organic life just didn't seem to me to be reflected in the modern dance, modern dance, meaning like the Paul Taylor uh, vocabulary family tree. I didn't see the world like that. It did. That seemed very romantic to me, romanticized to me. And I was more attracted like many people around me. I was more attracted to something that was more uh, concrete and, what I saw is like beautifully normal. Hmm. And so when you were first thinking about making a career as a choreographer, it was kind of in that mold, the sort of Judson church family tree mold. Um, I think I made a whole bunch of stuff first that was like, not like that at all. Mm-hmm. That was, um, you know, very young and, and, and a little bit unsophisticated, but then later, um, no, I don't think I ever made stuff like them. It was just more like they were my inspiration, but I never made work that looked like that. Mm. I, I think that because I was of the generation following that, I guess you would say I was, had moved on from there and it, I had digested it and happily digested it and wanted to do something else. And that's something else was inspired by seeing Pina Bausch in the 80s at Banff. Oh, in- interesting. So Pina Bausch was a was a formative influence. Was it kind of the the fusion of dance and theater in Pina yeah. Bausch's work that appealed yeah. to you? Yeah, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, I couldn't believe when I first saw Pina Bausch that the way that she borrowed certain things from theater and rejected other things from theater. And I love the things she borrowed and I rejected the things she rejected. So I felt like just to be specific, like, um, you know, I loved the costumes and the sense of, of, um, circumstance and cause and effect and 
memory and things like that. But I wasn't interested, nor was she, in narrative and in, um, quote unquote, making sense or, you know, I was much more interested in the elements of dance and of abstraction. So I was very drawn to that. And I think somewhere there was like an alchemy of, is alchemy the right word, of those two traditions for me. Um, yeah, I think alchemy works. Yeah. 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 So. I, I never thought about any, you know, you don't think about these things. You just go in the studio and you, the influences move through you, but you feel like you're making something that's never been made before, you know, <laughs> of course, sure. you know, and I was working in theater at that point. So I was really interested in text and I was interested in writing and mm. um, great writing. I was interested in Pinter and I was interested in, the Greek tragedians, tragedians, and I was interested in uh, Ionesco and, you know, um, the absurd and Beckett. And I was just, I'd never read any any of that. So all of a sudden I was just like consuming this stuff. And I guess it all made a big mix. So how did that, so you, you say that you'd been working in theater already when you first saw Pina Bausch. So what was that first kind of impulse to go towards that direction, towards theater, away from kind of a, a dance, capital D dance uh, world? Well, it was just lucky. Um, somebody offered me, and I don't think I was 25, maybe even before I was 25, offered me a chance to choreograph a dance for a play. Uh, and I went to the theater company. It was like a really small theater company, really interesting, that were deconstructing classic plays. And I think I started with Wrecked, making dances, and then Gogol, and I worked a lot with Chekhov. I still do. Um, and it was eye-opening for me. I'd never thought about theater or being involved in it. And I loved interacting with the text with dance having dance interact with the text. I was also doing sound design for them. And then, so that, and then Pina Bausch is another influence. At what point did you decide, or did the idea for big dance theater kind of happen? How did that happen? I think things like that happen typically because you're rejecting other things. Um, I wanted to make my own work and have that sort of opportunity that having your own company has, which basically means there's a room that people will enter and you have the opportunity to do things that are in your mind and to manifest them on those people's bodies. And I couldn't do that in the theater company I was working for. I, that wasn't their focus. I wanted to do something different and I wanted to do it differently. And I wanted to be a different leader than that leader. And I wanted to behave I wanted to have different relationships with people. And, you know, so it was all about sort of feeling like I was equipped to finally make my own work and have my own space. And really having a company only meant that we would, as a group, there was no commitment, there was no contract, there was no money, but that we would, you know, apply for grants and we would all 
be together a lot and stuff, but it was very loose. But even then, I mean, even it, when you were kind of a scrappy small theater company, you still have this name, Big Dance Theater, which is <laughs> sort of declaring your ambition in a way. It's kind of a weird name. I I made it because I liked Laurie Anderson's album, Big Science. Oh, okay, sure. And I thought it was cool. And I thought, oh, well, why don't, well, I like the idea of big science. Like, so why can't I have big dance? Okay. Um, and that's sort of where it came. And I had worked with, I was working with her, I think. Um and I just was, you know, really inspired by her, too. I mean, there's a lot of other inspirations I had, you know, really, really involved with um, visual art. And I was a visual art major for for half of college and, you know, really inspired by the conceptual artists and um, Bruce Nauman's movement work. And, you know, I also, you know, I think one of my major tonal influences was Talking Heads. Mm. So, so David Byrne was kind of part of your uh, like, artistic vocabulary <laughs> quite early I, on. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I was inspired by that tone. Yeah, that makes sense, huh? This is so fascinating, kind of seeing all of the, these different uh, influences. And I do feel like they all speak to a certain aspect of what you've become known for with Big Dance. Mm. So, oh, yeah. Cool. Uh, how did you meet Paul Lazar? Well, remember when I was saying a couple of minutes ago that somebody invited me to come and make a dance for a theater company? Uh-huh. Um, when I went in that room, um, there was a performer on stage, and they said the director said, we want you to make a dance for this performer. He's singing this song, this Brecht song, Kurt Vile song, and that was Paul. And that's how I met him. Had he really had any experience with dance before that? Um, I don't think so because he often, he went to Bennington College and he often says that he was really pissed at himself for not studying with Judith Dunn, who was there. Mm. Um, but he's a great dancer, uh, but he, ha- I don't think he had any training at all. Yeah. And, and he's also, I mean, a, a great actor, a very compelling presence, both on stage and on screen, <laughs> I think so. but also a very, a very unique presence. You know, he's in, uh, he's, in, I, I didn't expect to see him in Snowpiercer. And then <laughs> he's this sort of, uh, you know, mad scientist grinding bugs into these protein pellets. <laughs> uh, I thought he was great in that role. I thought that yeah. was kind of perfect for him. So yeah. what do you, what first drew you to him as a collaborator? I was blown away by his grace. I mm. couldn't believe when I, when I first worked on that dance, uh, how graceful he was. And, um, you know, I, like I said, I knew nothing about theater. I didn't even know they had directors in theater. That's how little I knew about it. Um, okay. I knew a lot, a lot about Balanchine. <laughs> I knew a lot about Cunningham. Yeah. <laughs> but I did not know anything about theater. So I was, I just thought I was surprised, you know, I didn't expect to see somebody move through space in that way. Um, then later he was really interested in making his own work and he was making things. And I don't know what the work pieces were like, because I don't think he taped them, but you know, I think they held a lot of abstraction, meaning like they were nonlinear, uh, not movement pieces, but no, I would say nonlinear sort of 70s-ish theater pieces. And um, I 
I was just really interested in what he was up to, and we started making things together. Um, so he, and it was good because we hold very different skills, you know. Do you feel like um, is that still true? Like, I mean, obviously you're more of a choreographer; he's more of a director. But you've been working together now for gosh, thirty years or something. Uh, so obviously, you know, you you now have a very significant body of work in theater, do you feel like you still kind of uh, occupy different roles when you're working together? Or do you feel like you've kind of melded together over the years? <laughs> it's, you know, it's like a really tangly braid, I would say. Very hard to tease out who does what. But because um, he has become, like he's making a dance right now. He's been working on it for a long time. He's going to be working with B.B. Miller on it. Um, he's become much more fluent as a choreographer, or I don't know if he would use that word, but, um, and I, I mean, we have different, we have different skill sets for sure. I mean, I do the visual stuff and this, and, and, and sound and the choreography, but I'm also directing, um, and he's doing all these other things. We've gotten better at other things, but he's more intellectual. And so when he reads a text, for instance, like if we were going to work on a play together, and having said that, we often do things separately that have to do with scripts. But when we're going to work together, definitely I would wish to hear what he's reading into the script first. And he has a different perspective on literature and plays. And um, that's his superpower. Hmm. You mentioned this this other theater company that you and Paul had worked with before Big Dance was sort of doing radical reinterpretations of classic plays, which is a method that, broadly speaking, could describe, I don't know, maybe a third of the pieces that Big Dance has made over the years, where you've taken existing works of uh, theater or, you know, of, of diary or film or whatever, and you've kind of stripped them down to some kind of an essence and use that as the skeleton to build a work. What's exciting to you about that way of working? Well, um, as you were saying that I was thinking about the difference between what I, I ended up have ended up doing and what that company ended up doing. And it's very, very different though. I would say we both are in a sense deconstructed. I mean, I'm scared of that word, but mm -hmm. rethinking classics at times. Um, I mean, I definitely I'm more interested in the physical life of the play and abstracting that and deepening that um, and using that aspect of theater as, like I say, probably the essential or central expressive tool. Um, but also, I'm really interested in performance and the way people say text and what it means to pretend to be somebody else. Uh, and if you need to pretend to be somebody else um, and just playing with all that, I have gotten pretty deeply into grammar and form and structure in the, in the creation of material. Wow, that sounds so confusing. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> it's in my book too. I have little charts about it, but you know, I'm really interested in working with text from a choreographic standpoint. Okay. That's the best I can do. Yeah. 
in the book, you write, choreography is more perishable than dancing, and dance is more perishable than fruit. What do you mean by that? I love that sentence. <laughs> well, it's so sad. It's a sad sentence. Um, choreography is basically, you know, I don't know how to put it. It's not really a thing. It's an organization and an and a and a manipulation of dancing, um, and so it just goes away. I mean, there's no way we're seeing it now on Zoom. I mean, arguably, there is no dance anymore. I would go so far as to say I'm not really sure what dance is on during the age of COVID if we're really experiencing dance at all. I'm not. I. When I sit and look at my screen and watch these dances, I can't say I have any kinetic response. Um, mm. And um, I think there's one layer that your experience is, what are they doing and how are they doing it? I get that part, but I'm not having any, any kinetic emotional experience like you do when you sit with your body and a dancer's body in a dark room or wherever the dance is staged. Um, in short, it lacks presence. Um, where was I? So what were we saying? You're talking about perishability. About perishability, uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a kind of a perfect, like when I wrote that, it was before COVID and I just was frustrated that there are no good videos of my dances that I can stand behind just because it just doesn't work very well. This idea of taping dance, even if you had you know, all the money, not all the money in the world, but more money than a two camera shoot with a simple edit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I feel the choreography is perishable. I'm not experiencing it the way I'm experiencing a, a Neruda poem that I read this morning. Uh, I'm not experiencing it. I see it, but I'm not experiencing it. So it's perishable. Um, and dancing too is perishable as we know, you know, the body decays and that's, what's precious about it. It's like so exciting to watch great dancing because somewhere in you, you're keenly aware that you're seeing something unique Mm. and you're seeing something momentary and you're the witness of that. And that's a relationship. Yeah, this is so interesting. I've often heard people talk this way about theater, about what makes theater special is that kind of moment of uh, ephemerality. But I, I don't think I've ever heard somebody talk about dance in quite the same way. But PS, obviously it makes perfect sense. P.S. I'm not saying that makes it special. I think that makes it bad. Because, oh, okay. <laughs> because it's, I mean, for a choreographer, not for the performer mm-hmm. in and the audience in the moment, it's, yes, it is special, definitely. But it's sad and bad that that's it. It's sad for a choreographer. I think when I wrote that essay, I was feeling really terrible because like I'm working so incredibly hard on something for years to raise the money and create it and figure out all the, you know, dimensionality around it that brings me to this single statement, right? Of my life and what I'm learning and reading and seeing and perceiving and what's going on in the world and all those things. And they're all being boiled down to this piece that you're seeing right now. But then when it's over, it's over. It's like so over. But I had a really cool experience that sort of is the exception to that rule, which is um, Spike Lee has filmed American Utopia. 
and he filmed it with 13 cameras and he filled it, filmed it with great love and intelligence and a brilliant eye. So when you see the movie, my dance is actually, even though it's not comprehensive, it's not like you have the wide shot of all the spacing and all that stuff. You get a kinetic, I think, you get a kinetic sense of that. Yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. It seems like, you know, it's maybe not true that dance can't be captured on video, but you maybe just need someone like Spike Lee, or I think about the Vim Vendors, uh, yeah. Pina Bausch movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, you need a really, you know, one of the great directors of our time, maybe it's up to the challenge. I think so. I think it's as maybe like, you know, when you read like, a, like Anne Carson, like a genius translation of an ancient mm -hmm. Greek play. Now, we don't know ancient Greek or I can't speak for you. I, do I don't not. know ancient okay. Greek. I don't either. But when you read Anne's translations, you don't have to be an idiot to like get a sense of how genius and deep they are and witty and you know how much is behind them, this sort of dimensionality behind them. So maybe like Spike and Vin Vanders and these people, these very rare people, have are great, great translators. Hmm. Because there's huge amounts of decision-making that he did. Huge amounts. It's not like you can't have a document of a dance that represents it because it's going to be boring. You know, you have to cut things and show just the feet at times. And show, you know what I mean? You have to, you have to make choices. Um, this is maybe a very ignorant question, but when you're making a dance, how do you communicate it to your dancers? Like, do you write it down in a sort of dance score or uh, do you, do you film yourself doing the dance or do you just tell it to them like you would blocking in a play? Like what's, uh, is there a, is there a kind of a, a notation process that's part of your, I don't know, part of your process of, of making a dance and communicating it to dancers? Well, it's a great and wonderful question because you see it's all of those things like it's everything you are like a desperate person on a sinking ship with no life preserver and you're trying to think of every single way you can to communicate that you need a boat okay it's right. sort of like that kind of feeling so you may make a note you may write a note you may draw a picture you may act it out you may videotape it you may you know have somebody make a metaphor you may write a dance score you may i mean often i like write a you know a, a, what what they call in writing a prompt or we call it directive um but that's just a tennis that's the beginning of the tennis match where the person you communicate something to them and then they communicate something back and then you in turn respond to that. And then they in turn respond to that. And that's when you have an amazing relationship with the dancers. So it's not simply, I'm teaching you this movement, which sometimes I do. I definitely do that when I'm working with dancers that have no training for generating material, like in theater, I often have mm -hmm. to do that. But uh, when you're working with dancers that are trained uh, creatively to generate material, it's like a very high level tennis match between, uh, 
Venus and I don't, don't know tennis, so I don't know what the names of people. But sure. Yeah, that's what it's like. So what could you give me an example of like what one of these directives would be? Okay, let's see. I'll look in my book. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I haven't really made any dance since February. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's one on page 91. Uh, I was working on a dance for St. Vincent. Actually, that's what this score is. And uh, this drawing I did is of a butterfly. And I didn't give anybody the score. I drew this later uh, afterwards. But I, my image to the dancers was, you're the butterfly wings. And the singer is in the middle. She's the body of it. And I was talking to them about symmetry. So I really, really love symmetry when it's used intentionally, very intentionally. Um, and so we, I made some material with my arms that was complicated, a bit arcane, and I taught that to them. And one did it on the re- right and one did it on the left. And then I said, okay, can you make that fancier? I don't know if that was the word, but fancier. Mm -hmm. And then they came back with a second phrase that was even more ornate. And then I said, okay, can you do that same idea, but do it in four actions? And they did that. And that was the third part and so on and so forth. So we bounced back and forth until we made this butterfly phrase. But sometimes I'm working from... Um, something like, uh, let me just think of other dances where like, okay, when I did Lazarus, okay, the dancer wasn't a dancer. She was an actor and there was a wall and I was like, attach yourself to the wall six different ways. And then she did that. And then I took those six ways and I made a poetic structure out of it. So it had reiteration and it had pauses and it had, you know, stuff like that, phrasing. Something like that. Is that a good example? That's great. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I had this idea that what a choreographer does is sort of, I mean, maybe this is because I'm a, I'm a playwright. So I think what, what you do is you sit in your room and you come up with a dance and you come to a rehearsal and you say, here's the dance. Oh, I do but, that. You're I, describing, I do that. Yeah, you do that as no, well. No, I do that too. I definitely do that. Yeah. I definitely do that. I definitely make stuff up in my room and I go in the room and I teach it to them. But I do it as little as possible, A, because I'm not a great dancer, and B, because it's never as strong as when we work together in that. Sorry if you're a playwright, but. No, no, that's. Because you don't get to do that. Yeah, you don't get to do that. Um, but it's a very. I like it to be as collaborative as possible, but also with a really tight rein um, on what's coming you know, what I'm asking and what's coming right. back. And then what I uh, originally, uh, uh, eventually make has a certain, you know, look to it that satisfies me. Right. Um, so a lot of the book is these wonderful charts. Um, I could try to describe them, but I think it's probably better if you do. So could you try to uh, describe what these charts are and kind of what point of the process <laughs> they come in? Sure. So the charts are all after the pieces and they have to do with kind of this sad feeling I have after the pieces are over that we talked about where the piece is sort of gone 
so I kind of feel like if I draw it, then I could put it back in the drawer and it would have a kind of second existence, sort of like putting stuff away. And the reason I use the word chart is because I think because I'm a choreographer and in choreography, there's a lot of structure. Well, like for instance, in a play, the traditional structure, you know, act one, you introduce the characters and the circumstance act, act two, there's obstacle and act three, there's resolution. That's like a, the simplest traditional. Um, and I'm sure you've recreated that structure all over the place. Um, and then I think structurally, I think structurally, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. And so when I try to figure out how to organize the page, which is a stage, um, I thought of a chart and I thought of cladograms, C-L-A-D-O grams, which is a kind of a chart, visual chart structure. And they're really amazing because they're expressive about uh, what, but their form and content are really similar. But, and I have made some of those, but the charts, I think, organize the material, almost like putting your stuff in your drawers. Like you have your underwear drawer and you have your socks drawer and you have sort of like that. So sometimes I made charts that were all the things in the piece that had sound in them and all the piece in the things in the piece that were furry and all the p things in the piece that were made from nature. And so um, it was like the materials of the piece. Sometimes you would call them the props or the objects or the stuff. And if there was no stuff in the piece, then there were other things in the piece like um, the way the movement was created or um, verbs in the piece like to rotate, to suspend, to grasp, to gather. I'm just reading a chart. Um, so the charts are all different, but they, I think they memorialize is the word that just came up in my mind or uh, save things in the piece that can be drawn. Hmm. You, you talked a bit about stuff. I love stuff as a word for props. I think that's so great. And, and I got the sense looking at the charts in this book that you love stuff yep. as well. So uh, when you're planning a piece, um, how do you decide what stuff goes in it? Are you, are you just sort of walking around? I mean, I feel like if you're at all, if you're at all inclined to collect anything and you live in New York, you just, it just sticks to you in a way, you know, I mean, I go out and I, I come home with four books and I don't know Ooh. where I got them. And, and, uh, and is that kind of how the process works? You're thinking about say the yeah. 17th century and you happen to see a great lamp and you think, Oh, that should go in the piece or is yeah. it more methodical than that? Or what, how does, yeah. No, how's the stuff like get in there? That. It's very, it's very, um, magpie gathering, um, you know, like in New York, when I first lived here, there was so much stuff on the street, so much good stuff and a lot of good paintings too, but like a lot of cool stuff. And I like to think about the relationship between things like, uh, a fan and a fan, like, if you could have a fan on stage, like a little fan that you plug in, you know, that mm -hmm. spins around. But then you also have a fan, like a Japanese fan, 
and you could throw up some piece of paper and fan them. Or you could have a branch that things fall off of, uh, little petals or something, and that would also imply the cause and effect of um, things, you know, the air and movement. And, you know, so I often looking at looking for things like that, the way things relate from a standpoint of verbs, like things that light up, like you can put a light in almost anything. And believe me, I have, um, you know, so you could have a lamp, but you could have a light on your mic and you could have a lamp, a light in the record player when it opens and a light in the desk when it opens and a light in your party hat and a light on your gun and a light underneath your dress and a fireplace that you plug in and you know like there's this relationship to stuff or like sometimes I'm looking for stuff that's all one shape you know like circular like I'm looking for a wheel and a balloon and a basketball and a pumpkin and you know just like everything circular so that's like thinking choreographically about objects I think is really what I'm talking about here Hmm. Uh, you often work with dancers who are not professional dancers, whether they're actors or musicians. Uh, what's different about working with non-trained dancers versus uh, sort of classically trained dancers? Um, well, of course, trained dancers have a tonality in their body that untrained dancers do not have. Um, they have a wider, by far, range of, uh, and they have the training to understand how to use it. Um, and the non-trained dancer can be interesting because they actually are the pedestrian body. So if, you, if you're interested in using, quote unquote, the pedestrian body, and you're working with a dancer, that can be very hard for them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like acting a train, asking a trained opera singer to sing a folk song in a simple way, it's very, very hard for them. And it sounds funny. Um, so they have different qualities of movement. The untrained dancer is extremely limited, but they're also super interesting. If they're interesting performers, um, they could be fascinating dancers. You just have to figure out how to use them. Uh, I feel like that brings us to uh, The Road Awaits Us, which is a piece that uh, you made that involved a company of uh, older performers. Uh, How did you have to change how you work to accommodate them? I had a really powerful image in my mind about how to work with them. So I wanted to work with people over 70. And in The Road Awaits Us, they mostly are. I think there was one who was under. But... um, And the reason I wanted to was because when I was a dancer, I worked in a Buto company Mm -hmm. and I worked a lot in Asia. And I noticed that the Asian cultures have dances and songs that are for older singers and dancers only. Meaning you had to get old enough in order to be able to perform those songs and dances. And that made a lot of sense to me. Um, And so I always had in my mind, and I mean for like 30 years, that someday I would make a piece 
for older performers that only they could perform. Mm -hmm. So when I first had the opportunity to work on this piece, I was working at Sadler's Wells and it was a program for older performers. And some of the choreographers made pieces that were those kind of pieces where they say, wow, they can still do that. Mm. But the thing was, they couldn't still do that. They actually, it didn't, it didn't, it betrayed something sad there in our thing. It's still a youth culture thing. Like, wow, they can still lift their leg. Well, they can, but you don't really want to see it. There's a kind of a sadness around that of something lost. And I was committed to trying to make a piece where it looked like it was like, not looked like, that it was like they had earned the right to perform this material and they couldn't have performed it a day earlier. Um, so working with them was, oh my God, I had the best time ever because A, they're an incredible group of performers and B, they understood how to bring themselves because of all their great training, uh, bring themselves to this material that they had finally grown into, I guess. That's fantastic. Um, I, it sort of reminded me, I saw that piece at uh, Skirball Center, I think probably in the, mm -hmm. in the fall. Um, yeah. And I had just seen, I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a documentary about uh, the Pina Bausch company restaging some of their shows with uh, dancer, uh, untrained dancers who are like middle school students. No. Have you seen this film? It's so great. They're, they're, I mean, they're just so, you know, sort of like uh, proud, but also ashamed and just very 12. But it sort um, of had that had that sense to me of like, you know, they really tried to see what are what is what do these bodies do particularly well that, you know, they it would be they would do less well if they were 10 years older or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. What can they bring to it that nobody else can bring to it? Yeah. So, and you, you sort of tie that to the larger idea of like a culture of youth, but there are theater roles that I think are sort of like this, yeah, like, like there's, you know, you wouldn't want to have a King Lear who was 45. Right. Um, so I don't know, is there something about dance that you feel like it makes it uh, maybe particularly not receptive or maybe it's our reception of dance makes it difficult to have uh, older dancers specifically? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's our sense of, of the timeline that when we're, uh, I mean, I also love virtuosic dancing, don't get me wrong, mm -hmm. and really appreciate it. And I gasped too. But um, that's, that, that that is what dancing is, that's it. And it's not the uh, other ends of it, other sides of it. Those parts aren't valuable because we're so into a particular kind of physical virtuosity. Um, I would say there's many virtuosities um, and that's just one of them, the great, you know, beautiful belly, you know, the, the, when you're in the, the prime of your athleticism, that's one virtuosity, but it's not all virtuosities. Um, I'd love to talk about the tone of your choreography. Uh, I find your choreography is often very funny um, in ways that I, I have a difficult time even articulating. I mean, the text of the pieces is often funny, but actually the way you choreograph does strike me as funny sometimes. Uh, and that strikes me as very different than how maybe somebody who does, isn't very familiar with modern dance thinks of modern dance as being this sort of very serious ritualistic thing. 
do you find that you have to reframe dance to allow your audiences to laugh along with the piece? Oh, I'm so happy you think my work's funny. That really, that's <laughs> like the biggest compliment. Um, I, I think there's a lot of wit in it and I don't know how other people see it. And I, to tell you the truth, the second part of where you say reframe it so audiences, I have, I mean, the problem is, is that the audiences for the kind of work I'm doing are so limited that I don't know what the audience is, you know what I mean? Like, I don't even pay any attention to it because it's just, it's very, very limited. Like, my experience with it is either they're the people I'm speaking to the other, other artists in that world, um, that's one audience and that's a large part of it, but like, at Skirball, we only did two performances. So I can't, you don't learn anything from the audience in two performances. I got spoiled because of being on Broadway and every night, you know, you have a thousand people seeing your work seven shows a week for months and months and months. And it really hit home how limited, um, you know, the, the, the scope of the response is. Um, so I, are you referring to um, American Utopia when you yeah. talk about, yeah. yeah. How did you, I mean, so you've done choreography for Here Lies Love, the David Byrne, I, I guess, yeah, musical. Was that your yeah. first musical that you choreographed? First and only. <laughs> I mean, that's so fascinating. I mean, you, you're known for working at the intersection of dance and theater there is an entire, you know, genre of theater, musical theater that uh, involves that intersection. And yet you you sort of, with this one exception, not worked in that form. But Why I mean, have you I, made that decision? Well, it is a decision. I mean, it's not for lack of opportunity, to tell you sure. the truth. I and assume it's so, bit, yeah. <laughs> a little bit embarrassing because one would like to think that one is, you know, adventurous, but... I have this problem, which is I don't like musical theater. <laughs> so uh, I, and the reason is, is because uh, I'm, I don't know how to respond to a particular kind of tropey musical theater music as a choreographer. So like if I'm invited to do a project and I listen to the music, I literally don't know what to make. I don't have any ideas, so I can't do the job. Do you know what I'm saying? It's not sure. like I'm saying, oh, I don't, I'm a snob or I turn up my, whatever. I don't have any ideas. I can't be helpful. Whereas when I work, was working on David Byrne's musical, I mean, the music is so extraordinary and it's so groundbreaking because it's narrative. It tell, it does the heavy lifting of the, that the musical demands. Um, it's very narrative, but the music is fantastic. Like, uh, why can't people be inspired by that? So, and it also has like, um, you know, dimension and uh, anyway, so that is really why, because I haven't related to the musics themselves, the pieces of music. Um, I also have a dance company, so I'm often busy. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's very clear in your book. I mean, there are some years where you, there are three different pieces, I think, in 2017 or something. So, yeah. you know, it's not like you're uh, twiddling your thumbs or anything. Mm -hmm. 
So, and then after Here Lies Love, you choreographed for American Utopia. You also choreographed for St. Vincent. Um, I happen to have seen both of those. I, I didn't realize that you'd choreographed for the St. Vincent show until later. And then I realized, oh, that's why the choreography was so great. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> and, and very different. I mean, I see a lot of rock shows. I, I love rock music and I see shows, you know, I, I, probably, I see many more rock shows than I do dance shows, for example. Uh, and so it was extraordinary to see that element of choreography uh, that extensively kind of welded with a, a traditional, you know, guitar solo rock show. Uh, so it was, it was very exceptional to see that. So uh, how did you kind of start working in that world? And, and what was that, what was that like? I mean, obviously it's a very different form than, uh, than even a, you know, very strange type of play that you do with big dance. Yeah. Well, um, it started with big dance because I, um, David Byrne, who's like an omnivore with theater and dance, he saw big dance, I think back in, I don't even know, like maybe one of our first pieces or something. And he saw a lot of our work and I didn't really know that he had seen it. And like I said, at the beginning of the talk, I was, a, am, and was, you know, huge Talking Heads fan. So, um, I was really excited when he called me in like 15 years ago and was like, oh, do you want to choreograph? I'm asking a couple choreographers to choreograph for this show I'm doing with Brian Eno. Do you want to choreograph? So I made three pieces for, I did three songs. And then he asked me to choreograph a couple other things in the show. And we never really talked to each other so much, but we just, I think, it must have been working really well because then he asked me to choreograph his next world tour and his next world tour. And then he introduced me to St. Vincent who he was doing a show with. So I did that show with them. And then she, and so it was all like, um, through him. Um, and, and I had worked, I have worked with other, that's, I'm much more involved in that world than I am in the musical theater. The, and even maybe even the theater world at this point. And what's, I mean, you know, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you do that? How do you choreograph for, for a rock show? I mean, what, what are the, obviously, you know, you, you're drawing on techniques you've been developing your yeah. whole career, but it's, yeah. yeah what is, what's different about that? Well, it's, it's a different contract with the audience. It's so fun. I love, I love working in that world so much because what the audience wants is completely different than they want in a dance concert or at a play. They want to get up and dance and have a good time. <laughs> okay. It's mm -hmm. like, can you imagine writing a play that that was the contract with the audience? <laughs> I mean, it's just completely different. Yeah. And you know, and they might be drunk and stoned and that's fine. Like it's just totally different. It's unrelated. So basically I'm thinking, until the very last show I did with St. Vincent, I was thinking song to song to song. Like, what does this song want? What does this song need? Um, and I choreographed it, honestly, you know, I can't think of another word to say. I choreographed it from my body and from my sensibility. And that just, there's just so many, I've done it so much. There's so many different responses that have come out. And many of that has to do with what the artist is interested in. Like for American Utopia, David Byrne had a very specific uh, 
first, the first couple ideas that stuck. And so I was ripping off of those ideas. It's just so much fun. And that, that show for people who haven't seen it, there's, there's no, there's nothing on stage. There's these kind of beaded curtains and every instrument that's played is handheld. Uh, and so you don't have any stacks or monitors or, you know, the drum kit or anything like that. Um, was that was that an idea that he kind of brought to the process? Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That was his dream. And he had been working on this, I could see, from when we, st- and maybe before, from at least when we started working the first time, which was like, I should know when, but I'm going to say 2005? I don't know, but a long time ago. But um, that he, okay, so that ubiquitous mess on stage at a rock and roll show, the drum kit on a platform with a lot of cords and some water bottles and the standing mic stage right and the thing and the, you know, all mm-hmm. that. He hates that. I mean, he, he's such a visual, he's a visual artist himself. He has a very, very clean minimalist aesthetic. Um, and I think he's been rethinking that for a really long time because after the second show I did with him, he started to dismantle that. So by the but he went on a head mic, what we call, we, in the rock world, they call it a head mic. In theater, they call it a lob. But he went on a head mic, I'm going to say 10 years ago. A lot of rock and roll performers don't want them because they think the mic sounds better, the standing mic, I think. But, or they like to be strapped to it because their pedals are there and because then they don't have to dance so much and, you know, mm-hmm. gives them a more of a mooring if they're scared. But he was wanted to be free. So at least he was completely floating around in space, which meant I could choreograph him for two hours. You know, he was completely without it. Sometimes he had his guitar, but even that, you know, is fun to make stuff for. So um, eventually, by the time he did came up with the idea for American Utopia. He just wanted to get rid of everything on stage. Um, and he had people, I think he was one of the people, um, invent these harnesses so the performers are cordless. There's a moment in American Utopia where, uh, you know, it's, it's in a while since I've seen it, so I might be misremembering it slightly, but where sort of each person on stage kind of does their own little dance figure. Yeah. And I, it was such a joyful moment. I, I was actually moved to tears just by the, the, the sight of all these people so clearly having a great time. Um, <laughs> was the process of creating that moment similar to kind of what you described where you, you give a sort of intentionally uh, maybe vague instruction and then kind of bounce that back and forth with the, with the performers? It's like, it's very surgical. I'm happy that it looks joyous. And in a sense, if you go to the wide shot, it is joyous. The whole process of making dance, it's very natural, but it is also surgical. So every single one of those performers is different in what they can do, what they look good doing, what they're willing to do, what they want to learn versus what they just want to, you know, roll out. Um, some of them, you know, I want to bring out from a dance perspective how they're different. So there's 12 different dancers on stage in that moment. So it looks really like 
casual and a little breezy, but actually that's a, that's a very well, a very crafted part. Mm. And then finally, I, I know I've already taken up a lot of your time, but I'd love to talk to you about 17C, which was uh, the first big dance show that I saw and it just blew me away. Um, it's sort of a, a, a meditation on the 17th century, but with like game show <laughs> elements and kind of YouTube aesthetics in parts of it. Yeah, so yeah. Uh, how did you come up with the, or how did the company come up with the idea for 17C? Well, um, that was because I had been reading Pepys's diaries, which are the 1660 to 1667 diaries for years. You know, those books that are just by your bed and you just keep mm-hmm. dipping into them and they're, they're huge. And I was just very enchanted at first by them because Peeps danced. He danced a lot. And he, and I was like, wow, people used to dance. It was, it mattered. And he danced in order to be respected. Um, it made you somebody in that society, you know, that was, had some like, um, you know, it was gentlemanly and it had, you know, culture, mm-hmm. cult- cultural, cultured. Um, and I love anything where dance ha- matters. Um, and so, but there were other things. I loved how he was obviously a, a generative creature who could not, literally could not stop writing. Mm-hmm. And he had to, he was a diarist of the, um, most intense degree in meaning that he didn't just need to, to record what happened that day, but it it seemed clear that he needed, that more was happening as he was recording it. He was understanding the world, his world, who he was. So that was sort of like my first level of, of thinking about peeps. And I liked the idea of working with the material um, because I thought it was weird and all those things. But then when I started getting into it, um, I had this idea that we would have this level of like people talking about it from a contemporary perspective, because there are all these peeps bloggers and every single day, somebody writes an entry, uh, a response to the entry of that day. And they're still doing it right now as we speak. So it's like the peeps fan club and it's crazy. Um, and so I got into reading those and I thought like, I'd like to use some of that material. Somehow I came upon these people, um, in Utah, this, this woman in Utah, who's a forester and she did this podcast. I think this was like in 2015. I don't know. I can't remember, but some years ago she was doing this podcast about 17th century astronomy. And I was like, oh, wow, she's so cool and smart. Maybe I could um, commission her to do a podcast about peeps, and then I could use that material. So I asked her, and she was like, yeah. So I sent her one of the diaries, and she wrote back, and she said, I hate this so much. You're <laughs> such a fucking asshole. And I was like, you're so right. Oh, my God, I've like been ignoring the fact that he's, he's basically a rapist. And yeah. I've been like skipping over all those parts. And then I looked back and saw, oh, my copy is censored. There's so many different versions of his diaries. My copy had taken all those out. So she, her copy 
was a more complete. Mm -hmm. So um, then the piece became a lot more political. Um, and that was just, that's just the beginnings. It's such a huge piece. It's so, there's so much to talk about, about it, yeah. but anyway, that's how it sort of started. Yeah. That element of it, I thought was so brilliant how, you know, you really, for the first sort of hour of the piece, you're kind of getting the audience on Peep's side and trying to, you know, share your, your love of what a strange, weird guy he is. And then you find out that he's actually, uh, you know, abused, sexually abused. Uh, it's like his, his servant, right? It's someone he has yeah. like yeah, power servant. over. His servant. Uh, which is a monstrous thing to do. Yeah, uh, so I ended up writing this yeah. huge monologue on that. So, so there's six weeks of diary entries where he talks about abusing Deb Willett, his servant, his young servant. And I don't think she was 17, maybe 17. And it's so extraordinary, this section. And I ended up rewriting it um, when I was up at McDowell. And Paul has this monologue in the middle. So from a structural standpoint, I was pretty excited about that because it's basically a one hour and 10 minute piece. And in the middle of the piece is a 20 minute monologue. Mm -hmm. And I like that structurally. Yeah. And it was also just such a great way of kind of implicating the audience in that question of what do you do when there's somebody who has created, you know, an extraordinary piece of work that you feel uh, you're, you've emotionally identified with. And then you find out something, you find out that that person also has, has done horrible things. And does that kind of poison the well of your enjoyment of the, of, of the diary as a whole? And that's something yeah. that the, the characters in the play kind of grapple with as well. Definitely. And luckily, when we were at BAM, it was the same week. I don't know if you remember this, that I think that yeah. CK was implicated. Mm -hmm. um, and it was just after the senator in Minneapolis, Minnesota was implicated. And so the whole audience was watching the play from that perspective. So the lens of the world was, was with the audience as they watched it. Um, and that felt really strong for me. That was exciting. Yeah. Well, Annie B., thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts. I really enjoyed drawing the surface of dance, and I, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thanks, Andy. I, I really enjoyed being on your podcast. And I, I hope once this corona business is over, I'll be able to see another big dance show soon. <laughs> oh, thank you. Okay. All right. Talk to you soon.